The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Let's pray one more time. God, as we come before you, as our, our hearts are quieted now during this time of prayer, we ask that you would answer the prayer that, that Seth made on our behalf, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you would send your Holy Spirit to, to work through the preaching of your word to have an impact upon our lives for your glory. God, that is our prayer. We thank you for the gift of your word. As it is opened now, reveal truth from it. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Everyone, please have a seat. We are in the book of Mark, just as the scripture reading had us, Mark chapter 12. And as you may have noticed from the scripture reading, not a whole lot of introductions required for this text. Jesus himself did a fantastic job of painting a word picture for us to get this story going, one that I'd have a hard time competing with, and I'm not going to try. This parable that Jesus gives in Mark chapter 12 occurs during the the last week of his ministry, in his pre-resurrection ministry, that is, before he is uh, taken to the cross. And during this time, he is put in direct confrontation with the ruling authorities of the day, with the religious authorities. And as Jesus is having this confrontation, he is to be for us a very picture of grace. God incarnate is standing there before the elders, before the scribes, before the chief priests, and he is giving an account of what is going on in Israel and what he is doing there. But as we saw last week, there is not much changing in the heart of those who are opposing him. They are hardened. They do not want to acknowledge that the one that they are talking to is the long-foretold Messiah. The one that they are supposed to be looking forward to coming is there. The evidence, when looked at carefully, is undeniable. No one could deny who this man is, Jesus. His authority is the very authority of God that has been vested in him. However... If they were to say this, their lives would be over as they know it. Everything would be turned on its, on its head, if you will. They'd have to admit that they were wrong. And that proves to be a step that is too large for them to take. It's a step that's too large for the establishment to make. And so they will not change. If they would recognize Jesus as Lord, 
he would extend grace upon grace to them. They refused to do so. And the parable tells us the story of repeatedly denying grace of God, what that will do. It eventually leads to judgment and a perilous end. Church, as we look at this parable together, I want you to see that everything was set up for a beneficial relationship in this parable. But honoring the covenant or the lease agreement became a stumbling block over time. It fell apart because of a deceitful concept, a concept that says the rules can be rewritten for self-serving purposes. This is ultimately a rejection of the terms that were clearly laid out, a rejection of the one that had laid out the vineyard for proper use, and a rejection of his grace. And of course, rejection reinforces more rejection, eventually bringing about the destruction of the deceived tenants. And although the tenants are destroyed in this parable for their wickedness, God is still exalted. His judgment is righteous. Nothing is taken away from him. And the observer is left marveling at his perfect plan. The idea of seeking one's own glory is not foreign to us. This happens through the working of sin into our lives. And given time and distance from the glory of God, inevitably that combination of time and distance becomes deceptive and corruptive, like morsels that we feast upon. And our newfound diet shifts our understanding of where glory and honor rightly belong and attempts to shift that glory and honor to ourselves where it does not belong. What do we do? We, we cheat. We cheat on the terms that were established in the beginning, subtly affirming our own superiority in the way we think. This only further corrupts, distorts the relationship. And at this point, God makes subsequent attempts to penetrate the self-deception that shrouds the hardened heart and we rebuff him. We turn away his messengers, we scorn the Holy Spirit, we deny the truth of God's word. In the end, all of these are all all obstacles to obtaining our own selfish desires. And like the tenants in the parable, we're willing to figuratively kill whoever gets in the way. Have you witnessed this pattern before? Is this reminiscent of a pattern you see in your own life currently? Church, the only way to turn from this destructive path is to receive the grace of God. Seek the abundant grace of God and find sweet rescue for your soul. The picture of grace shows up in in three distinct areas as we go through this passage today. The first is grace is offered in the establishment. We'll take a look at that first. And then grace is offered in spite of hostilities. And finally, 
grace is offered to others. Beginning with verse 1 in Mark chapter 12, looking at grace offered in the establishment. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. The parable is plainly describing God's work. There's no denying that this man who's doing all this work is God doing a work. And what does he do? In short, he does everything. He does everything. He is the one who establishes the property and makes it profitable through his investment. He plants the vineyard. He protects the vineyard by putting a fence around it. He thinks about the the coming harvest, digs a pit and makes a wine press that can take the grapes and turn them into wine. The man does all of this and even more. He builds a tower in this vineyard. And when you think of a tower, it's more than just a watchtower. Most biblical scholars would say that this would have been like the villa in the center of the vineyard. It was the, the place where the tenants would have lived. It's where the grapes would have been able to come in, where the wine press would have been located. It would have been in the center of their existence. In addition to all that the man did to establish the enterprise, he also chose the tenants. The tenants that he could partner with to work the vineyard and to produce a fruitful harvest. He would have carefully explained the terms of the lease agreement with them. It would have had to have been an agreement that was favorable to both parties for them to have agreed to taking it. And it was agreed to. And then he entrusted all of his property to the tenants and went away to a foreign land. Do you see how there is grace offered in the establishment and just what is presented here in the beginning, just the establishment of the vineyard. How, just think about this, how would the tenants have had anything to do with this vineyard if it hadn't been for the man who established it? There's grace in the establishment. Have you considered how God has lavished his grace upon you by making it possible for you to partake in and what he has made in his creation. You are creatures that are enjoying the creation that God has made. Everything from the, the drink of water that you take that, that quenches your thirst to the relationships that we have that warm our hearts, relationships with our children, relationships with those that are dear to us, like our spouse or our friends that Bring warmth to our lives. All part of God's establishment. And viewing these beautiful gifts in the light of grace will draw you nearer to God and grow your love for others. All of this grace in the establishment comes with an understanding of how the man and the tenants will interact. And that's what we see here in verse 2. This is going to be part of the way these individuals, the man and the tenants, are to interact. 
When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. This would have been a normal part of the agreement, and it would, would have come about over time. In the time of Jesus, as it is in our day, when we were dealing with perennial crops, you don't get a harvest that first year. It takes a while to, for the vines to mature, to fill in the space, and for a fruit to be produced. In addition to that, if they were following Levitical law in Leviticus 19, they would have specified a time. So in, in the hearers, the original hearers of this parable, they would have been thinking four or five years probably has elapsed between when the agreement has been established to when a servant would have been sent to get a portion of the harvest. What happens after you're doing something for five years without very close involvement with your business partner? Wives, what would happen if after five years you hadn't spent much time with your husband or any time? Or husbands with your wives? Five years is a long time. Coupled with distance, time and distance, when you couple those together, it can work in interesting ways. Have you considered the combination of forces at work here of time and distance? What thoughts begin to consume you during these times? What actions are taken that wouldn't necessarily be approved of, but you know that there's enough of a buffer that they might not even be noticed? What liberties are taken in that amount of time? How is the established covenant to be held in high esteem when a great deal of time has elapsed, coupled with the knowledge that you know that the person that would enforce the covenant is nowhere near, even in a distant country. It'd be wise for us to see what takes place next and recognize that sin's seductive allure is enhanced with the separation of time and distance. We ought to be vigilant in these types of situations and seek ways to connect with those that we are in relationship with, even when these elements are present of time and distance, whether it's in a business dealing or in personal affairs. Vanessa and I are talking frequently about this very dynamic as we're preparing for me to go into the airline industry knowing that there's going to be distance and that there's going to be more time spent apart. So in preparation for that, what have we done? We've asked the elders to be checking on us regularly, the other two elders. We've put this before our community group regularly to keep it in prayer because we know that this is something that we need to be careful of. But what situations might you be finding yourself in? I've thought of a few. Maybe these are applicable. One might be teenagers left at home alone. Is this an area where time, separation from authority figures, is setting them up for something that wouldn't be good for them? What about a business deal that doesn't have much in the way of oversight? How are you conducting your affairs there? 
Or maybe for some of the the younger ones here, there's a temptation to cheat in your home. You know where the answer keys are. And you know that they're not always being carefully guarded by your parent. Wherever you find a little separation made up of either time or distance from the one that you are supposed to be held accountable to, this is where temptation may be lurking. This is where the tenets of our parable are. The grace offered in the establishment is refused after a time. We see that it's refused after a time in the way they respond to this servant. In verse 3, and they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Isn't that a shocking verse? If you think about it, the agreement was made. Everyone knew what was supposed to happen. And when the man who established the the vineyard, if I said orchard, I'm sorry, I might say that more than once. I'm not meaning to. The man who established the vineyard sends his servant. He's beaten, sent away empty-handed. The man invested so much in making the vineyard viable, protecting it with a fence, preparing for that eventual harvest by putting in the wine press ahead of time, making a place of habitation, even choosing them, the tenants, to be his business partners, working out a deal that was acceptable to both of them. But what of the time? Four or five years, most likely, Living in a place, that can have a corrupting effect. And the only way for us to stay true to our terms when we find ourselves in similar circumstances is to have regular and close reminders of our agreements that we've made. With athletics being a big part of the congregation and the children that are here, we are in a period of transition, aren't we? From wrestling season to baseball season, from winter sports to spring sports. This is going on in the life of the congregation. It'd be important for us to keep in mind that we are making commitments. As we sign up for a team, as we go out, we're making commitments to our coaches and to our teammates. You should talk with your parents about how you can develop a proper view of your commitment at the start of the season. Why do we say at the start? Because over time, it becomes more difficult. As a Christian, if you've made a commitment, you need to guard yourself against changing the arrangement in a manner that benefits you to the detriment of others. Remember, we are attempting to be a picture of grace wherever God has placed us. That means we fulfill our commitments. Jesus is using this parable to speak directly to the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. To say, this is what has been done over generations. He's indicting them about the the state of affairs that he finds himself in. Jesus is saying, my father appointed Abraham 
through a covenant made with him to uphold his end of the deal. That there were promises made that there was land given and entrusted and that this covenant was reaffirmed time and time again. And although there was wrongs committed on the behalf of the people of Israel, there was an ongoing reaching out and an extension of grace over and over and over again. God sustained his people even though they mistreated his servants, the prophets, and went after other gods. That is what God did over time. He offered grace in the face of hostility. And that's exactly what this next portion of the parable and this text is going to go over. God offering grace in the face of hostility. In verse 4, after the first servant was turned away, beaten, we see that the man, again, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. So the first servant was sent to check on the landowner's property and to receive the appropriate lease payment for the harvest. And this was denied. That fruit that was supposed to be set aside for that payment was no longer offered. Instead, a beating and shameful treatment. And then the landowner, the man in the parable who is representing God, realized he would have been justified to end the deal at this point to get new tenants, to bring a swift end to these tenants for their wickedness. But here in verse 4, that's not what we see. We see an extension of grace offered in the face of hostility. He does so by sending another servant. And be careful not to think that this is a lowly servant, someone that could be easily pushed around. This is a representative of the landowner. And as a direct representative of the landowner, he was carrying with him the authority of the landowner, the voice of the one who sent him. And this parable is painting a picture of Israel's past. As you read the Bible, you come across account after account of God's people, his chosen people that he sends his prophets to, to warn them, to turn from their wicked ways, to repent and to follow him as their God but they ultimately reject the prophets. And in doing so, they reject God. This continues in verse five. We see, and he sent another, and him they killed. Not only are they beating and treating shamefully, now they get to the point where they kill. This is a a horrendous pattern. And it's being called out by Jesus against these ruling authorities. He speaks to them in this, in this parable and describes this, this horrendous, unthinkable act of killing one of the servants. But he doesn't stop there. The man, and so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. This is an ongoing extension, an offer of grace in the face of hostility, continually being offered. But what happens? The people have begun to to tread down this path, the people of God, God's chosen people. And because they have done so, and they've been separated from true repentance, 
They've only been reinforced in their behavior because they get away with it. It becomes well-known, well-worn. And they become right in their own eyes as they do away with the prophets again and again, directly resulting from their, their holding fast to a false belief. But amazingly, God still offers grace. He still offers his grace, providing repeated opportunities to change, to repent, and to return to him. But they don't. So let me ask, is this happening in your heart right now? Are you repeatedly turning down God's call to change your behavior? to give up on the destructive pattern that you have slipped into? How are you to even know if this is happening? If you're paying attention to the parable, you realize that hardness begets more hardness of heart. One rejection of God leads to another rejection of God's grace. But God is showing his repeated grace. He sent to them another And then he sent to them another and another and so forth. And it continued. These are the prophets. They're spoken of all throughout the the scriptures. Men like Moses, who are described as the servant of the Lord. Men like David, the anointed king, also described described of as a servant of the Lord. So how do you know if this is a pattern in your life? Do you have more than one person who is lovingly approaching you and and bringing up something that you are tenaciously holding to and yet they are saying, maybe that's not good for you? What about scripture? Have you found scripture that speaks against something very specifically in your life and yet you're finding it much easier just to pass by that and, and determine that must be for somebody else and not for you? not humbling yourself before God, instead giving yourself the excuse, even justifying your case. Patterns like this that crop up in our lives are devoid of respect, they're devoid of love, and they are typically characteristic of some forms of cheating taking place, cheating on agreements that you have previously made. This is where, if you're seeing this in your, in your life, where you should humbly repent, turn away, allow this cycle to be broken. Ask for God's gracious hand to be extended to you and receive his forgiveness and it will be given. And if you know that you've hurt others along the way, ask for their forgiveness as well. Even after some contemplation, on these types of patterns that might be going on in your life. We see that the pattern does continue in the parable. And God demonstrates here, through his son, a tremendous willingness to continue to pursue, to not relent, but to extend grace upon grace. In verse 6 of our text... Says the man here, he had still one other, a beloved son. 
Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. Grace is offered in the face of hostility over and over again. Now this willingness to send the son. This, most assuredly, will bring respect. The beloved son of the landowner. Landowner. The land, just keep this in mind. The, the beloved son, Jesus Christ, who is speaking this parable to the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, they're listening to this parable being told to them by the son of God, the beloved son. They are listening to Jesus, the Messiah, but they refuse to affirm him as who he really is due to the hardness of their hearts. Do you hear the refrain? It's not said here, but in Matthew's gospel, it's woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. It's not here emphatically in this message, but it is a clear message nonetheless. So Jesus continues in what seems to be the most absurd direction, but it reflects exactly what is in the hearts of those who he is addressing. This absurd direction we see take place in verses 7 and 8. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. The beloved son. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Tenants with grace being offered to them. Yet again, here now the Son is sent to them. All they have to do is repent. To accept the Son and to provide what has been agreed upon. That's all they have to do. And, and in this parable, we get the sense that if they were to do that, all would be forgiven. Even after all the other things they had done, if they would accept the Son and repent, they'd be forgiven. They need to seek the abundant grace of God and find the sweet rescue for their souls. Sadly, what do they do with the grace, grace that is offered to them yet again? They utterly reject it. They reject the grace because they hold to a false belief. In their hard hearts, they cannot let go of their false belief. Think about this. In no universe would a landowner think, oh, they've killed my son. Now I'm just going to give the vineyard to those who killed my son. No universe would that be a viable option. And yet that is what is going through the mind 
of these tenants. If we kill the heir, we can have it all. It's a lie. It's incomprehensible. And, and that is exactly what sin does, friends. It exchanges the truth for a lie. And it ultimately leads to destruction every time. But the destruction of these tenants, in this case, does not cause the plan of God to be destroyed. Instead, this rejection of God's grace leads to the grace being offered to others. This rejection of grace leads to God's grace being offered to others. That's what we see here in verse 9. And as we continue into our last point, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. This man who planted the vineyard, who protected the vineyard, who prepared for the the coming harvest, his character is on display. That's God. And then his son whom he sent, his character is also on display. And the character that's demonstrated is unmistakably grace giving way to more grace. After repeatedly sending his servants and having them turned away, Seeking the hearts of the tenants, the man finally sends his beloved son. Again, the tenants despise the gift of grace that is offered to them, and they kill the son. So what is the owner of the vineyard left to do? Jesus takes the listeners to this point. What is the owner of the vineyard left to do? The answer is obvious. The listeners are hearing through the parable their own condemnation. When Jesus says he will come and destroy the tenants. But even in the midst of destruction, God's grace continues. He is right in bringing judgment upon these tenants. They're wicked. But his judgment also gives us the revelation that the vineyard is not going to be abandoned. The vineyard is not going to be deserted. It's not going to be left desolate in a wasteland. It's not going to turn into something useless. No, here we see that Jesus is going to take what is his, the man, the owner of the vineyard, and he's going to extend that grace to others. All that was stated previously about grace being in the establishment That grace, that grace in the relationship that was was there in the beginning is going to move forward. And it's been enhanced. Over time, there has been cultivation that has gone on. There has been work that has been done on the vineyard. And that is going to take place and be entrusted to others. Is this now going to diminish the glory of God in some way? Is he going to be seen as a failure for having to shift the vineyard over to others from the wicked tenants to some others? Jesus answers this question as he continues speaking. And he answers it in verses 10 and 11. 
Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. In a far cry from diminishing God's glory, his glory is enhanced in what he is doing here. Jesus adds this quotation from Psalm 118, and he's saying that God's plan was to do so all along, to move this agreement onto others, and to understand that he was working in spite of those who were trying to work against him. That is why this passage fits so perfectly. Don't you see that what the the Lord is doing is marvelous? He's moving along his plan of salvation. Jesus, who we know who was rejected by men, has been exalted by the Father. Jesus, after laying down his life for the sins of you and for me, was raised back to glorious life. Because of all this, he has been exalted to the head of the church. The stone which the builders rejected has become the most important aspect, the cornerstone of the whole structure. The others mentioned in verse nine, the term others are rightly understood to be the church. God is moving his plan along now to the church, which is made up of believing Jews and Gentiles. I'm going to read for us from Romans chapter 11. If you want to flip there, you're welcome to, or just listen. But in Romans chapter 11, Paul speaks of this transformation that's occurring. Speaking of a remnant. In Romans 11, verses 5 through 11, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if by grace it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. But the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, Did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Church, we have been offered this grace by God. So we must ask, what are we doing with it? It was passed along to us What are we doing with it? Throughout the passage, we have seen how grace has been extended by God repeatedly and then rejected by the tenants. 
and this was due to their hardness of heart. The human condition, that is fallenness, is a plague we all have. And it makes us just as prone to having a hard heart as it did to Israel. So we have to ask, how do we combat against this? How do we keep ourselves from becoming hard-hearted? I'd remind you to pay attention to what's here in the text. Recognize the dangers of distance and time. Distance and time have a way of skewing our thinking and our response to God. We have to always be pressing into the Lord. Allow our hearts to be daily examined by the truth of his word. This has a softening effect. It's much like putting a a piece of tough leather into the, the hands of a master craftsman. And he can take that tough leather and work it and make it supple and usable. That's what God can do with his word on our hearts. Keep it soft and supple and usable. The Lord will keep us working for his kingdom's glory if we continue to press into him and avoid setting up areas where there's distance from him or time separating us from him. I'm going to read from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, if you want to take a note of where this text is coming from. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure is being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's Paul speaking to the believers in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2. And for us as hearers, as part of the church, this is good. But for those who are listening to the original giving of this parable, firsthand, this was not at all what they were wanting to hear. In the face of repeated extensions of grace and behaving woefully as predicted, we see what they do in verse 12. These original hearers of the parable in Mark chapter 12, verse 12, and they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. They have every opportunity to hear the truth spoken to them by the mouth of our Savior Jesus. And they might right the wrong but they don't. In our community group discussion this last week, we we talked that some do end up repenting after this, but the majority on what's there before us in this text, they go away. They reinforce their arsenal and are preparing to come back with further attacks upon the Lord at a later time. They want to get rid of Jesus but they can't because they continue to fear what the people are going to do if they take him in public. 
They further harden their hearts by continuing to deny and acknowledging that he is the son of God. God has given his own son to redeem those who are lost. He has put himself into this parable very plainly and said, my beloved son is going to be the one who's going to come and he's going to die. He's going to be thrown out of the vineyard. But what is not given fully in the parable, but that we know through the testimony of God's word is that he doesn't stay dead. God raises him from death back to life and then raises him up to sit at the right hand of the Father. And that's where he is now. And this is all part of God's plan. It is the Lord's doing. Christ came as the suffering servant. The early church stood upon this truth. Peter proclaimed boldly and full of the Holy Spirit in Acts before his accusers. Peter said, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be, by which we must be saved. And Jesus, our Savior, is seated at the right hand of the Father, preparing for the hour when judgment will come because judgment will come. And until that final day passes, as time passes by, we are warned not to succumb to the hardness of heart that leads to the rejection of Jesus, but rather we are to seek the abundant grace of God and find the sweet rescue for our souls that is promised in God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have done all things according to your will. Even when there are those who work contrary, attempting to topple you, there is no removing your plan of redemption. There is no getting rid of the Son, the beloved Son. Lord, you are our God, you are our Savior. And we need you to be working in our lives regularly so that we do not succumb to the hardness of heart that we see evidenced in those who are leveling their attacks against the Lord, against the Savior. God, continue to build us as the church. You have entrusted us with much. We have the gift of grace lavished upon us. Help us to be grace givers to be lovers of others, to deny ourselves, and to proclaim Christ as our King. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.